And welcome to uh, our fourth episode of our special mini podcast uh, series uh, on the Nessa Group. And uh, once again, we're here with the same team. My name is Anthony Verna. Jim Huerta, how you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm glad to be here. All right. Barry Colveson, how are you doing? Great. Wonderful. Will Jakes, what's happening? Oh, not a whole lot, but I'm <laughs> glad to be here. <laughs> glad, <laughs> glad to have you here as well. Justin Tripodi. Justin, how's it going? Doing great. Excited for the conversation today. Ah, me too. As Me too. So today we're going to be talking about clients who are resistant to change and businesses who are resistant to change. And hopefully we will find businesses who are not resistant to change because change sometimes, especially when you bring in a group like us, is what helps a business grow. Jim, Barry, the three of us worked on a, a particular business a few years ago. And I know uh, it's more than a few years ago, but let's talk about that for a second. Uh, this was a client, uh, the company that was sued for trademark infringement. Uh, this was a case where um, it wasn't a full brand, but it was an apparel company that was using a, a, a design on its clothing that was similar enough to a registered trademark where the trademark owner filed a lawsuit. Um, it really wasn't worth defending. We were able to settle. The good news is that we were able to settle for $20,000 over a period of time and the company was able to um, destroy the offending products, we'll call it that, because I don't necessarily think it was infringing, and move on with life. Um, that part was was that part I think was a great settlement. Um, the three of us looked at this particular company's books, and the three of us saw here is a company that was a million dollars in the red. They're selling jeans, a company that is selling jeans. In my opinion, should not be a million dollars in the red. One area that I noticed was that they were buying too much product from their factories. They were not selling the product um, uh, fully. And when they would sell the product, they would sell it over at overstock.com for a loss from what they bought it from the factory. So Jim, let's start here. What are some ways to avoid that red number when you know you're purchasing too much from the factory? No. In this case, it was tricky. I mean, obviously, inventory becomes a, a very important thing. I think a lot of companies don't realize that uh, if you have an excessive amount of, of inventory and you're carrying too much inventory that you're not moving, it starts working against your P&L. It just has to. You, you're releasing prices that, that you can't really work with. This company had more unique things going on when it came to this red number. Um, they had a parent company uh, offshore, and the parent company was trying to move their inventory back to the local uh, company. So in order for them, the parent company, to look better that they were moving inventory, they were housing it back into the local company who was getting beat up and was going into the red. But there was no communication what was going on. There was no idea where the, uh, the stages of different inventory levels were at. An incredible amount of transportation costs. When we looked at it, and we looked at some of it, we didn't get enough information. We started realizing that a lot of this inventory was in transit because of the way they were structuring this movement. They were just, you couldn't really track the inventory and the dollars just kept on going up and up and up. And as Anthony pointed out, 
uh, it hit a million dollars in the red. They were in trouble. Jim, that 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 description of of how the money flows and how the inventory got you know was was transported is seems way too complex. Um, it, it, it's it, it's it wouldn't be complex if you wouldn't have the relationship you had uh, with the parent company and the local establishment. What was happening is that the parent company was actually working against, in their own way, working against the local silo or the the the, the company they had or the sub company they had. They were coming up with a number that was looking good in their home ground, but when they were sending it out to the local guys. These guys couldn't move the product. The product was being stalled. They were being sued. There was a whole bunch of stuff going on. And it it really just, how can I explain this in a, in a way? You cannot not understand the impact of inventory and inventory cost on your business if you don't have some kind of a control of the flow of that cash, as I said earlier. For example... They were doing inter, uh, intercompany uh, accounting. What did that mean? That mean that the guys who were sitting at the local location were sucking up a cash. They were just bleeding cash because the parent company was making an entry that was bleeding the assets coming out of the sub because they were moving the inventory. So when I say cash flow, it, it, it just it, it, it emphasizes the fact that if you don't have a realization of how your inventory is working, how well it's moving, where it's going, where it's sitting. What are your traffic guys telling you about inventory that you're going to suffer this pain no matter how big you are? And actually, as examples of very large companies have suffered the same problem. Barry, uh, when you see a smaller company that's a million dollars in the red, but still has a million dollars of inventory sitting in the warehouse with the cash flow uh, that Jim has described. What are some of your thoughts on on how to advise that company to get better? I think basically they have the inventory. I think that they have to sit down and change their method of operating, moving the product, selling the product, and also all the amounts of money to, in the storage warehouse that they have to pay for. And I think that they could change it and then start weaning it down over a period of time. So somebody can look at it and say, you're at a million dollars, you know, work it off. And maybe they can then do a, a basis to come back. But to let, it, to let the boat sink and lose a million dollars is hefty. How does a parent company look good? And and how was this other company organized? Were they a subsidiary? Because it's a it's a I, I don't understand how one part of a company looks good and the other part of the company looks bad. Isn't it all the same books? Oh, Enron might know something about that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's yeah, right. What they were doing, Will, to try to answer your question, the parent company was charging an astronomical amount for the inventory being shipped to the subsidiary. So their revenues were being pumped up to the, to the point that when they did a consolidation of the subsidiary, the pumped up number coming from the parent was eating up the million dollar loss. So the parent company was always looking, hey, we're okay, mm-hmm. while the little guy that was being sued was getting hammered because of the fact they couldn't meet those numbers. 
It wasn't like they were. It's not. It wasn't like I was charging you ten bucks and you were, you marked it up and you were selling at a price point of twenty. It was the other way around. Mm-hmm. My parents selling it to me at twenty, and I can't get more than ten for it. Mm-hmm. So I'm already I'm already in the ten dollar mm-hmm. short shortcomings, and that's not a good idea. And Jim, just to make note, um, you know, a lot, this conversation is focused on focusing on products with uh, companies with physical inventory moving around. Um, cash flow management is also very important for technology-based organizations, um, virtual marketplaces, et cetera, because of payment terms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's the revenue coming in the door. Um, when you get that revenue, sometimes a question mark, especially if you're a B2B player, uh, and your cost might be on a different time frame. So you could be operating at a loss month over month, year over year, if you're not closely managing your cash flow situation. And just as a quick story, at a company I work with uh, in, the, in the influencer marketing space, very successful, would partner with small brands to reach influencers, would do a couple of hundred grand a weekend under their weekend burst. But because of payment terms and when the brand would pay them and when they would be forced to pay out the influencers, they are operating at a loss week over week. And even though their revenues were phenomenal, their profits were in the red. Um, and that was because they didn't closely manage their cash flow operations. Um, so it is relatable to both businesses with physical products who have to undergo shipping and have a cost of goods sold, but also technology companies as well. Justin, I think that that's, that's an excellent point. But I think the other point for, for everything that we're talking about here is also communication as well. Here is a company that didn't communicate with its counsel because they, they never presented any particular uh, apparel designs to counsel. And that's one of the, again, just like in the previous episode, that's how they got sued. Here's a, a company that wasn't communicating with each other to make sure that the cash flow was right and and I think in Justin's particular case as well I think communication is is uh, needed to get the payment terms proper and to get the cash flow. I think it also comes down to recognizing you have a problem. Um, you know, in in my uh, story, the problem wasn't recognized or diagnosed or appreciated by the operating team. In your situation, the problem was diagnosed actions didn't pursue accordingly. And I think that's a lot of what we see with small businesses is they know something isn't working, but yet they're very abrasive as per the title of this episode to change. (laughs) Um, You know, and that's not to say we always have the right answers. We don't. But when things aren't working, you need to adjust. You need to operate outside of your comfort level. Uh, You do not want to end up like Blockbuster or Kodak who were against change and now are companies that are in the history and not in the future. So when you when you open up books of a company and you see the these particular issues, what are some of the um, maybe not answers, but what are some of the other questions that you ask in order to help tackle the problem? What are some of those strategies? Well, um, uh, from a financial review of, of, of say the financial statements, the P and L particularly, um, I would look at certainly the costs that are being always driven. I'd look at the gross margins. I would look at the below the lines. And what was happening in this particular case uh, is that their gross margins were not, and when I say gross margin, it's, you know, whatever you paid plus the cost again. Mm-hmm. And they were not looking at how to fix that. 
nor below the line. Now, when you're sitting below the line kind of thing, they still had the same payrolls. They still had the same traffic guys. They still had all those things that were dr sucking up cash from them, and they weren't making adjustments. Like, for instance, they weren't sitting and saying, you know, we, ha we have an overload of inventory. We're so far away from our reorder point that it's, 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 we'll never get to that unless we move this whole inventory. Well, the numbers are going to tell you, maybe one of the things to do is that you're still going to take a loss, but you won't be in the red for a million dollars. You might mm -hmm. be in the red for a quarter of a million dollars. Me as sitting in the corner office, if that's the choice you're giving me, I'm going for the quarter million, okay? I'm mm -hmm. not going for the, for the million dollars. And they weren't doing that. They just kept on loading mm -hmm. it up and loading it up, and it wasn't working. It was, uh, it, it, I think from my background, financials talk to you. Financials mm -hmm. have a language of their own. Yeah, you can have a lot of different expertise, but if you know the numbers, you pretty mm -hmm. much can tell what, what's hurting mm -hmm. the company. And then go to specialists like we have in the Nestle Group and say, this is your area. What do you think? Am I looking at this right? I, I think that's exactly right. Is that we don't have a magic wand that, that we just wave and say, okay, all your problems are fixed. Yeah. Um, it's a process that we follow. It's our due diligence process. Whenever we get a new client on board, we need to learn their business as quickly and as thoroughly as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, that is done through both conversations with that business to hear what they feel, they feel is their business challenges today. And then we need to dive in to their books and to all the other requested due diligence materials for us to create our own um, idea set of what their problems might be, because they might not be one and the same. Um, sometimes founders and business owners, um, because they are entrenched in everything going on, might not have really an accurate understanding um, of what their challenges are. Or maybe they just have, have, have to have an open discussion with other people who have specific competencies in different areas to figure out different solutions to going forward. But for us, it all starts with a strong due diligence process. Uh, the time frame of which is, is very much variable to the business itself. It could be a very quick one or two week due diligence process. I've done six months due diligence process because there was a lot to uncover. Barry, uh, when you look at a company like this, what are some of the management suggestions that you could make to help them improve? This goes back right to the base when the business was set up. They had a, the people that started in the a CEO and all that stuff. And I don't think they ever looked at it afterwards with who had what responsibility. And when it blew out, it was too late. Or the person that they hired in a critical area of the company was playing around with the money. Yeah, no, there, there, there's, there's no doubt that there were, that, that this was a company that had that needed some wholesale changes, mm -hmm. and and really they didn't they didn't really want to I think be honest about what those what those issues were. Well, they were they were embarrassed yeah. because they wanted to say, "Look, we did it." Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other thing they did, by the way, I think Justin, you you probably appreciate from a marketing point, <laughs> when they started getting a feel that this was going nowhere in a hurry, supposedly they called up. The few times they talked to the parent company and said, we can't move this expensive pair of jeans. We need a, a lesser version, an elastic version or something that's different. Mm -hmm. So the parent company said, oh, yeah, we can take care of that. And they came up with a, a version that was costing them less money, but they were still tagging the subsidiary for the higher priced version. It was like, oh, how did that help the situation? You, I, you know, overall, 
overall, uh, that actually brings a thought into my mind. If you're selling apparel like this, don't you need like like a good, better, best kind of of model if you're selling apparel like this? Absolutely. Like, 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 yes, we're not okay. We're not going to be designer jeans, but we can have um, a, a retail twenty dollars set. We can have a retail forty dollars set. And we can have a retail. So well, that, that's set. why Levi has been successful through history. I mean, we all grew up with Levi. Mm -hmm. You go into Macy's for an example. And there's a Levi for every body, uh, for every shape, for every price tag, because they've they've actually worked on that end. They actually mm -hmm. discovered the fact, I got this. My name is sufficient, but mm -hmm. now I'm going to give you a little bit more. I'm going to let everybody be mm -hmm. happy with my brand. You know, Barry mentioned something just before, uh, and he used the word embarrassed. Right? And going back to the title of this episode, Resistance to Changes, well, why would a business owner who knows he needs help be resistant to change or recommendations of a team um, who who are working with his best interest in mind. And this is where the psychology of business works in. And uh, for any of you who are still in school or looking to back to school, I would heavily suggest taking a psychology class <laughs> to complement any of your business classes um, because at the end of the day, business is done through, uh, with people. Uh, I'm a big advocate that business is not difficult. People make business difficult. And in this case, and with this topic, it's people making business more difficult, whether it's because they're embarrassed of their current position or embarrassed to admit that they made a mistake. And when you're dealing with large companies where people are accountable for their decisions, sometimes they'll fight back just so that person is not wrong. So you have to understand the corporate structure of who you're working with to understand how that might play out. Because sometimes you can have great conversations on the phone, get brought in-house to meet the team, and conversations don't go accordingly to plan. Um, it could be that some founders don't want to lose control of their business. They feel that if they're doing something that wasn't their idea, that they're losing the control going forward of their business. Some people are unsure of what a deviated um, path might look like because that's not the path they've been on. And that's understandable. But your business does need to change in order to grow. It needs to change in order to compete and continue competing. If you do not change and evolve your business, competition will pass you by quicker now than at any other point in history. Uh, to your point too, Jeff, I don't know if it still exists. Mm -hmm. I, know, uh, I know you're involved with the, the universities and stuff. When I went to school, there was a thing called consumer behavior. It was part of the marketing curriculum. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it still exists, but I remember that very point that you're making. Mm -hmm. They would drill the people, listen to what these guys, the consumer's thinking and the way they're reacting to what you're saying, and that's important. That was the topic of that class, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I so it's, it's, it's um, the psychology of a founder, and, and there's no um, set psychology. I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't comment on that. But you do have to tap into the emotional side. And it's not hard. These people, these founders, these entrepreneurs have invested their life and sometimes their life savings into trying to accomplish something. And sometimes we have to say what you're doing is wrong or what you spent your money and time on has to be changed. And that's scary. And I get that. So there is that emotional side of the business that we need to be relatable. And I, I found a lot of times that, yes, it does have to do with poor planning. Maybe the product wasn't positioned in the marketplace. Um, but a lot of times founders are just trying to do too much too quickly. They're trying to build their entire vision, something they dream about and think about all day overnight. And they fail to break it up into digestible linear steps um, that is also in sequence with their budget. Um, so, and some, many times it's just us advising you need to scale back 
You can't start with this shiny new Ferrari. You need to start with a Toyota and then work your way up slowly. I make a lot of weightlifting references as a former weightlifter. You know, if I try to jump up to what I used to do back in the day, the bar wouldn't move off my chest. It would just lay there. But if I start small at a weight I can do now and increment slowly over time, I'll get back up to that sure. that weight. And that's how a lot of uh, small businesses and startups need to focus their efforts, especially when they're resource, resource constrained. Yeah. And there's a lot of hidden things, too. You know, uh, in this case, and now my last word on this particular case, because it, it just defies everything I was taught and everything I practiced with this particular client. But I believe the parent company their actions had to do not with marketing, not with the product, but had to do because they were offshore and their investors were offshore. And when they had those board meetings, they were telling their investors, look how good we're doing. And most of those board guys weren't not caring what the subsidiary was being crashed about. They just saw this wonderful number that was always in the black. And why would they bother? So that's a, a piece that could cause that resistance. It doesn't have to do with the market. It has to do with my mm -hmm. investor, I got to keep him happy because I'm going for mm -hmm. another round. So I'm going to do everything I can in the books to make this guy think I'm, I'm walking on water. That wasn't the case here. They were mm -hmm. eventually going to get caught up. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's, I think the embarrassment is a good key here because this was a company that I think could have hit a home run. Oh. And um, the way it was structured and, and the way they were ordering and the way that they were, they were spending money on shipping and spending money on inventory and yeah. spending money on warehouse fees, all of that just, just, just really rippled into something bigger. So the, a company like this just couldn't grow. And yeah, they were embarrassed, but you know, we were there to help yeah. and, and, You've got to, to communicate, you've got to listen, and and that's a part of the key here. Justin, I think you have a happier story for us. <laughs> I, I, I do. It's definitely challenging when um, a client comes to you to help and they seem to be, they push back against all your recommendations. Again, it's not to say we're always right, but something does need to change. It's the definition of insanity to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. Um, but in, in one case, I was working with a, a first-time founder who had a really innovative idea for the costume industry. And I'm not talking just Halloween, but um, millennials have paved like, way like to the, the cosplay industry. The cosplay, well. live-action role-play. I mean, there's hundreds of events that now go on across the world every week, every month. And people are dressing up because they want to experience what they watch on TV. Um, I believe it's called the Game of Thrones phenomenon, that people want to dress up like the characters, not just watch them. So he had, he had an interesting idea or concept. And when he came to me, uh, he had already spent a couple of hundred thousand dollars on technology and initial marketing. And when my business partners and I jumped into kind of our due diligence process, we realized that what was designed and built and spent already was really no different than costumes.com. There was nothing innovative um, in physical presence. Now his concept still had merit, but it wasn't delivered the right way. Um, so when we sat, sat down and realized, well, what should be the positioning of this product? We saw a large opportunity to combine both experiences or these costume events with suggested costumes. No one surprisingly was doing that. No one was really aggregating these costume events across different segments like cosplay and LARPing, etc. cetera. Uh, and then we began to pivot the company uh, away from what he was doing towards this new intersection of events and costumes. We created a new online platform 
first catered around events. We had to create new uh, business material, new financial models, and essentially a whole new company. And when it came to the technology, the unfortunate part was we had a uh, third party do a technology audit of the existing code, and it was found out to be what's referred to as spaghetti code or unusable code. So a couple of hundred thousands of dollars that was spent for that was essentially thrown out the window. We couldn't build on top of it. Now, we did explore litigation to get that money back against the development partner. Um, but, but I'm sure that, that at the end of the day, you kind of think to yourself, well, gee, even at $300,000, that may not be worth it. And that, that's the predicament we're in, was how much are we going to have to spend to get this money back versus what we need to spend to launch this company? Now, the good thing is, um, as a first-time entrepreneur, uh, he was very open to our recommendations and understood what he didn't know or knew that he didn't know everything. Um, and he embraced our ideas. Um, we were able to repivot the company. Uh, we were able to get investor interest. Uh, and he successfully launched the new version of his website in beta. Wow, I, I cool. think that's impressive. Yeah. So how are sales looking for this particular client right now? I have to check back with him. It's been uh, a year and a half. Okay. Uh, my, my position with him was, was to help him re-pivot or pivot the company and launch. So thereafter, my role ended. Um, I'm sure the journey for him in no ways ended there uh, because essentially his, his business as a virtual marketplace for costumes also had a heavy supply chain aspect to it, similar to Rent the Runway. Rent the Runway, the, um, the website, is actually the largest uh, dry cleaning company in the world. I believe that. Um, so he had similar challenges that he had to face as well. He made a lot of great connections in terms of building that supply chain, but that was a completely different function he had to tackle. Why did he make the change? What was the tipping point? Uh, initially? It, yeah, well, what was it that made him finally accept your recommendation and move forward? Mm -hmm. Well, I, he was never uh, too resistant to, uh, to our recommendation. I think it just figured out, it took some time for us to figure out what that recommendation would be. Mm. Um, because, you know, sometimes starting from scratch is easier than building upon something that's there. And in this case, mm -hmm. we were trying to build upon something that was there. And we were trying to work within those parameters and it proved too challenging mm -hmm. uh, and not intelligent to go forward with from a time or money point of view. Yes. So once we realized that, especially getting the feedback from the technology audit, we realized we were free to go in a completely new direction, that he was going to have to report to his investors the money that was invested was lost, that there was probably going to have to be a down round of investment. We'll explain that in another another episode. Tune back in. Mm -hmm. um, but he he he... We carefully articulated the problems of the business and the risks we saw going forward. He took the time to understand them and talk to his advisors and colleagues as well. Uh, and with some back and forth, he understood that this was uh, the best path forward despite the lost money of the past. So, Jim, Barry, let me, let me ask you about this. When you hear... Um, when you hear that somebody has a... a business in an industry that might be a little outside of your range. Like I could understand somebody saying uh, a costume company, like for events and people go there, I could see a little skepticism. What, what, what is your thought on an industry that might be a little outside of your expertise like this? I would think the easy thing is if it's a, a company that's very big beyond our capability, which we determined when we would go in initially and find out, 
and we would have to say honestly what we found out and see if they want to change what they're doing, which was one of the companies that we talked about earlier mm-hmm. yes. in this section. Um, I think our motto is we want to help the companies. We want them to succeed. And to do that, it's, as, as we've been talking about, it's people. When you, you see right through it. The business of the business is the business. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> it is. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's below the water level. Right. I, I, uh, in, in my situation, I, and maybe it's not a weakness, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm too nosy not to say, yeah, I can handle it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when I don't know a business and the customer approaches me and it's an area I don't know, uh, Will and I have had this experience with my, my current enterprise, uh, I do my homework. And that's what we've mm-hmm. been talking about all along. I get into the industry, and not because I want to be smarter than the people mm-hmm. who came up with the idea, because I never can be. That's mm-hmm. in their heart. It's in my brain. It's different. But at least that homework leads me to people who know that business. Mm-hmm. And I can pick up the phone and say, hey, Harry, mm-hmm. you don't know me. Let's have a cup of coffee. I need you to talk to me about this. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've done. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think consultants, there's plenty of consultants out there who would have different mm-hmm. specific areas. I don't see many that do what we do. I mean, there is big companies that do what we do, but our size company. Mm -hmm. And I just think that I don't ever want to say, no, I can't help you. Mm -hmm. Because what you're offering is that intellectual capital and that experience that's saying, Mm -hmm. I saw something like this and I know where it went Mm -hmm. and make that analogy and then do your homework. And and that's Mm -hmm. what we've been talking about through this all these sessions is that Mm -hmm. We're asking our clients to do their due diligence, and we're asking of ourselves to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I tend to be, or at least try to be, industry agnostic. And I think there's a couple of benefits of doing so. Um, one is working in different industries gives you insights that you could borrow some industry dynamics to another industry, uh, maybe shake it up a little bit. Um, but also, to me, consulting, advising, whatever you want to call it, it really just comes down to problem solving. Um, and we're all curious individuals, and I think the trick is asking the right questions. If I'm being brought into a company to help them with a specific function, I'm not expecting myself to be the subject domain expert, and that's not how I pitch myself. I pitch myself to help them tackle business challenges or struggles that's preventing them from growing. That is done by asking the right questions and collaboratively coming up with the answers with that business or with that founder or with that CEO. And I think the second point of that is um, a real asset that we provide that we haven't really talked is, and you touched upon it, Jim, is bringing in the right talent that's necessary, depending on whether it's the automotive industry or renewable energy or uh, online marketplaces, whatever the case may be, once we diagnose the problem with, with the entrepreneur and with the, uh, the, the CEO, uh, and we kind of have an idea of, of what these problems are, what a solution could look like, we'll help bring in the necessary assets or, or key individuals to take it, to take the tactical execution to the next level, whether it's industry contacts, industry subject matter experts, uh, maybe legal es- experts within the industry, anything that we don't feel comfortable handling ourselves, we will surround ourselves with the right talent. Uh, and I urge all startups and small businesses to very much do the same because it will speed up your solution set considerably. Yeah, I... I- 
I, we said it earlier in the earlier, earlier episodes. We've all gone to a lot of academic study, all of us, and we know that there is people who we refer to who were the theorists, who were the people who first came up with the ideas and the foundations of those ideas, and I think they're genuine to all industries, like you said, agnostic, mm -hmm. because they're the basis of the foundation. Mm -hmm. Now, what we do beyond that foundation is we bring the little, the little carpentry and the little plumbing and the stuff mm -hmm. that we have learned because of those theories. Mm -hmm. We add that and we tell our clients, we don't expect you to know all this. That's where you got us involved. And, and I think that's important. I think that I think the Nesta Group as a whole is very, very uh, keen on the whole idea that there is basic foundations that need to be structured, whether it be patents, trademarks, marketing, operations, finance. We, we see that and we come from that place and then we build up and mm -hmm. I think that's important. And, and, and the key is there that a lot of the functions that you just listed need to be considered together exactly. and at the same time. And well, it's, it's people. It, it, it's people, but it's it's realizing the interrelations between um, me trying to figure out what my marketing positioning is, me trying to figure out um, if I can get IP behind the solutions that I'm bringing forward, me trying to figure out if I can get a trademark on the brand I want to go forward with, me trying to figure out what my supply... A lot of these questions overlap and play off each other, and an answer to one or a failure to answer one could dictate an answer in another business function. And this is where we find um, a lot of founders and young businesses making a mistake. They um, silo different business functions and don't have them talk to each other. And almost 100% of the founders I work with who, does, who do this do not reach the level of success that they expect. Um, well, or, or it's much slower to get there. It's a reason it happens. And so no side can fall uh, to hubris, so to speak. Uh, so you look at particularly high technology, biotech, mm -hmm. uh, physical sciences, hard sciences, you know, med medical technologies. When you look to entrepreneurs who bring those kind of products or skill sets, you know, I have to remind myself uh, you know, that I cannot discount what they're saying. So yeah. I'll, I'll use I'll use just a, 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 a kind of funny example, I guess. So, you know, uh, let's say you were around when uh, the person first invented polyester. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, and, and so as business people, you know, we have, to, we sometimes have a lens, we, we have an optic around how we might commercialize that and what that particular, you know, material might be in terms of making a fabric, a, you know, that sort of thing. But I can also remember as a child laughing, you know, well, maybe smiling uh, would be a better term when we realized that this thing could literally go up in flames, you know, uh, and so. You know, even though this was this wonder fabric, it had a certain danger to it because, you know, we did not take into account, you know, uh, not just the business aspects, but the technology. And so you want to make sure that you embrace your technologists, you keep them, mm -hmm. you know, involved uh, in the process, but yet also educate them that it's not just about the technology. So again, to mm -hmm. all of our points, it's a team effort and everybody needs to be there. And it's just a matter of asking 
you know, as many questions and certainly the right questions, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as as you go to develop these businesses or help turn these businesses yeah. around. And, and I think, Will, I think that's, uh, we've all said the same thing, that how important the sharing of different disciplines and why our battle cry is uh, interdisciplinary communication. We as a group believe that success comes from a team that brings in different knowledge. And at the same time, we're also a group of people who don't pamper down creativeness. I know a lot of consultants come and say, oh, no, they shouldn't be. We don't do that. Be as creative as you want, but we're going to kind of guide you through that creativity because we need to do that for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. want to stifle mm-hmm. someone's creativity. There's a term over in Europe that I think is more popular than here, and it's called excubation. We've all heard about incubation, um, where startups get incubated by larger firms. Or excubation has a different model. It's almost the opposite. It's uh, allowing startups to thrive in an environment that they create for themselves by separating out innovation activities from core business functions. The innovation activities is their solution. It's their creativity. It's how they're different in the market. The business functions are more of what we're talking about today. Can Mm -hmm. the business sustainably Mm -hmm. survive? Exactly right. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, that's excubation, excubation. Check it out. It's a model that I try to endorse because I don't like the incubation model. I think um, startups, not all, but in, in general, ones who go into an incubator or an accelerator need to conform to that incubator right. or accelerator's um, strategy or functions. And a lot of times, startups are at different points of their life cycle and have different needs. Right. So you have that, that uh, challenge of conforming and still growing, which I think slows up their process. Sure so does. this idea of excubation, allowing them to thrive in their own environment, supporting them with the key business functions that they need while allowing them to creatively go forward is a nice area to sit in and one I know we try to sit in. So on on that thought, Justin, thank you, everyone. This is uh, the end of episode four. And Jim, once again, how can people find the Nessa Group online? I keep saying it, www.thenessagroup.com. Look us up at LinkedIn, Facebook. You'll find us and leave us a note and we'll get back to you pretty quickly. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much, Jim. And thank you, everyone, for being here. And thank you in the audience for listening. Thank you.